James. Duncan. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Uh, it's a beautiful day today, so uh, ready to get stuck into our next episode. Cool. So welcome to Cloud Streaks, which is a podcast where James and I talk about an article. Um, and this article is actually a podcast from All in the Mind, which is an ABC podcast on things about the mind, specifically on placebo. Um, it's a wonderful podcast that both James and I listen to. Um, you'll find it in the notes. Now, most of you have probably heard about placebo before, um, but the thing that we thought was interesting is placebo versus nocebo, which is the opposite of placebo. And we'll sort of get into the definitions quickly. And then how the fact that the idea of placebo applies not just in medicine, but probably in all aspects of your life. And so I'll quickly give you the definition of placebo. Placebo effect, a beneficial effect produced by a placebo drug or treatment, which cannot be attributed to the properties of the placebo itself, and therefore must be due to the patient's belief in that treatment. Nocebo, a negative placebo effect. For example, when patient takes medicine medications, experience adverse side effects unrelated to the specific pharmacological, pharmacological sorry, action of the drug. <laughs> um, okay, so... The very first thing thought is, James, where did you think nocebo came from when you heard of it first? Okay, so when I actually first came across this word, I literally thought somebody was being a bit cheeky. And they just took placebo and uh, appended a no to it. So it's like no placebo for you. So I didn't think it had any actual other meaning than that. Yeah, I thought the same, um, but actually it comes from the Latin word nocio, which means um, I shall harm. So this, whereas placebo means I shall please. So nocio is quite close to nocebo. Um, so yeah, there is actually a derivation for it. Okay, so I thought I'd quickly give my definition. In any sort of activity, there's the physiological outcome and then there's the mental outcome. So the outcome in total is the physiological outcome plus the mental outcome. And so if you get a better outcome than the physiological outcome, i.e. mental is positive adding, that's placebo. If you get a negative outcome less than the physiological, that's nocebo. And you can see this in lots of things. So some activities, let's say they're 90% physiological and some activities would be 10% physiological. So one of the things might be for instance, taking medicine, 90%. And the other one might be being creative, i.e. thinking of new ideas. That be, might be 10% physiological, you know, it's 90% mental. And the key bit, which I thought was super interesting from this article, was they were giving morphine to people who had chronic pain and they told them positive things before the morphine. First one, it's going to help you, it's going to be really good. And then they gave these same patients morphine except they didn't tell them it was morphine. They said, this is drug. We don't know what it is. It may or may not help. And those same patients reported 30 to 50% less effectiveness from the pain reduction. And it was, they'll both be given morphine. So literally their mind and how they were thinking about this fundamentally changed the outcome that they had. And I thought this is interesting. I was like, if this can be this big a deal in something like taking morphine or being given morphine, how much could it affect you if you are, for instance, at work or if you are playing sport or any other things? So, yeah. yeah so, it, it's a really, really um, 
it, it was very, very profound for me as well, listening to uh, the doctors and the researchers talking on this podcast. Uh, the first one being that realisation that a placebo can work the other way, uh, as Duncan just described, that you can still be getting medication uh, administered to you, but if you're not, uh, I guess, aware of it or if it's not done in the same way, it won't be as effective. Uh, so that, that to me was actually really, really um, startling. And what they were talking about or what they, uh, I guess, um, uh, uh, imply is that the ritual or the nurturing relationship of the patient-doctor um, interaction is a large part of what determines the effectiveness of the placebo. Uh, and that was something I always thought it was just purely the individual, the patient, and that it was all in the mind for them individually. Um, but what this is, uh, what the what their research is showing, that it comes down a lot to the um, whether they're actually being nurtured and whether they realize they're being nurtured by a doctor. Yeah, so they did some research on this, and I don't know why they needed to do a lot of research. They said the placebo effect, or the positive or negative mental side, was a combination of two things: the patient's expectations mm. and the way the doctor interacted with them. Wow. You mean that the patient's headspace mattered and how the doctor interacted <laughs> mattered? Uh, and so... Well, I thought, yeah. oh, no, I thought that um, the patient's expectations was like 90% of the placebo effect. Um, I, I think that what they're saying here is that it's the other way around, that the, the doctor's ability to empathise and nurture the patient is a much more powerful impact than um, the patient's own mindset. I think um, I didn't see that part. I think it's basically dependent. <laughs> Some people, they'll have, you know, their own head space is severely locked into, this is not going to be good. I don't like injections. Hospitals make me nervous, you know, and other people will be really susceptible to a external influence. Like if the, the doctor is really, you know, welcoming uh, and, you know, um, confidence inspiring, then they'll be more external. So I think it depends. It's not each person, it's 90%. It depends on the person, depends on how you are, you know, that day, depends on if the doctor's in a good mood or whatever else it is. Um, so it's really, you know, I think a combination of both of those things. Hmm. Um, the other really, really incredible part of this, uh, of, of learning more about placebos, is that, uh, the, the, for me, or my understanding that placebos have to be deceptive by nature in that you, uh, you're required to not let the patient know they're receiving a placebo for it to be effective. Uh, but what they talked about here is that um, that's not actually the case and that even when patients were told they're receiving a placebo or they're getting you know, sugar pills, it, it still has a positive effect on them. They still, that they still recover or they still show positive signs of recovering as they would um, if they weren't aware of receiving the placebo. So that was also a very startling thing. And that opens up uh, a lot of potential for placebos to go more mainstream because there isn't this ethical dilemma. Yeah, I think I, I just draw one just, um, distinction here. Sometimes what they call the placebo pill is the one where there's nothing. It's just a sugar pill. But I'm talking about the placebo effect, which is where anything that you are given... Mm. at a hospital and also outside can be positively affected on top of the natural biological, you know, uh, you know, hit or negatively affected. So you can improve the benefit of morphine 
if you've got a good headspace and the doctor is confident sparring. Or you can lessen the effect of morphine. Just like you can improve the effect of being given nothing if you've got an expectation that you're going to get better. Or you can make it worse. So the outcome is the physiological one plus the mental one. And the mental could be positive or negative. One of the key questions I had out of this was, if this is so important, and taking the case they put in there, morphine, where 30 to 50% of the pain relief is related to the placebo effect, then should doctors be being trained in how to give good outcomes? Uh, so my immediate response to that is that uh, it seems overwhelmingly um, they, they, they should. Um, so why is it not happening? And what, uh, or I get, what resistance are there being met to that? The, the, I can only think of two at the moment. The first one being is that medicine as a experiential, experiential science or experimental science sorry, uh, is actually relatively very young. It's only 50 years old, um, which is actually quite startling when you realize that. And the other one is that uh, the placebo um, as a study was actually um, well, it, uh, one of the first papers that brought it into mainstream Western medicine was um, tainted because it was found that the researcher who wrote the paper um, was uh, uh, like not authentic on his findings. So I think it should definitely go mainstream in doctors or in the medicine world uh, in, the, in that how doctors should be treating their patients as a direct effect on the patient's ability to recover from their outcome. Um, I just don't know how this is going to actually make the shift between it being a topic of research and actually applied medically. Yeah, um, I spoke to a doctor friend. Um, James and I are 34, so maybe it has changed. Um, but that, you know, 15 years ago when they did medicine, there was one, you know, for instance, lecture on health from like nutrition out of six years. And there was a couple of lectures on talking about how to actually influence people in the way that you speak. Most of it was on what are the symptoms and what are the actual, you know, diagnoses of those symptoms. When I say most of it, I'm talking about 90 something percent. Now, I'm sorry if there are some courses around the world that are completely different. Um, to me, there's so much evidence now, like thousands of peer reviewed studies that show that your mental side makes a massive difference, that I think it should be the case and that they should be being trained in this um and one of the things i was thinking is like is this manipulation um and i was just interested in your thoughts on that james like i i, I think it is but like is positive manipulation i think manipulation comes with a bad connotation mm. but what if you are positively manipulating people is that a good thing <laughs> well it's it, like so to answer your question i don't think it's manipulation if you understand um the effect behind it so if doctors are trained to handle patients with care uh, and as part of that, patients understand that their relationship with the doctor is important because that is instrumental to their recovery, um, then it, um, to me, is part of the medical um, uh, makeup of that actual treatment. So it's manipulation because just the way a drug is manipulating the body's um, chemical compounds. Uh, the nature of their relationship is manipulation in that it helps the mind um, you know, do what it needs to do in order to, for it to recover. I agree. Um, I think the doctors are there to help you. And one way is to like kind of accurately diagnose you know, what's going on. 
but then they want to help you recover. And part of recovery might be, you know, some medication, but also getting your headspace right to recover. Um, so I think this is something they should definitely be doing. This is maybe something which is slightly different. You know, they go to great pains now to put all the side effects on the, you know, on, on, you know, the drugs on things. Do you think that if writing these things and having them said there, could this actually be making people's headspace worse, i.e. expectations worse, and therefore lessening the outcome of the drug, if you're talking about this, this your drug in this case? And so should we actually have the side effects so prominently displayed or should they actually not be there? Well, yeah, so I certainly can't be uh, uh, someone who claims to have any kind of expertise in this area, but at Certainly from what they talked about in the podcast, um, uh, social conditioning, I think they called it, whereby simply by alerting a patient to potential side effects, whether or not they're actually real, um, can increase the likelihood of experiencing those side effects. So one of the, uh, one of the uh, clinicians uh, talked about a study where they had an actor in the waiting room. And that actor would uh, come out into the waiting room where the actual patient was, uh, and when asked about their treatment, would either say, oh, yes, I'm feeling dry mouth, dizziness, nausea, all of these things that don't actually associate with the drugs that they were being given. And then the actual patient were more likely to experience those side effects. Uh, and so the, um, the lead on here is that when you read a list of potential side effects on the side of a, um, you know, of a packet, um, there's no reason to suggest that they won't increase your likelihood of experiencing them yourself. Yeah, um, I don't have a strong view here. <laughs> I think, you know, if the side effects more than outweigh the benefit of the drug, then obviously that's not good. But maybe if, if the mental side also more than outweighs the benefit of the, the side effects being written on it, then that's not good. Mm. And so... I don't really know, but it's sort of interesting. If the mental side is so important, and again, morphine, 30 to 50% of the wins are mental, then, and, and imagine other ones where, where morphine's a pretty powerful pain, you know, killer. Um, imagine how much it could be working in other spaces. Um, so I thought we might sort of move on to how mental stuff applies in other areas, not just in medicine. And sort of the first one I thought I'd talk about is sport. There's a lot of research that getting people into the right headspace in sport makes a massive difference. And so there are some sports which are less, uh, I don't know, in right headspace. So if you're like a power lifter, it's more just physical exertion. But if you're playing basketball, then if you you know are in the right headspace, you'll, you'll be able to read the play, you'll have confidence when you go for your shots. And so they talk about placebo in this areas where they would, for instance, give athletes something and say, it's gonna help your performance. And in the powerlifting, it helps a little bit, but not very much because it's far more physiological, right? But in things where it's far more skill-based, it helps quite a lot. So basically, if people believe it's going to help them, then they're more confident. And then when they're more confident, they play better. And I thought this was just incredibly interesting. Mm. Uh, well, in my, in my uh, sporting use, we already knew about this, uh, and we called it Gatorade. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where we would, you know, be drinking that during the halftime huddle, and suddenly our uh, athletic abilities would go up, uh, you know, tenfold. But um, no, I think you know, you're you're right to your first point, Duncan, that 
it, whether or not they call it placebos or by any other name, it's very well known in you know the sporting world that these kind of uh, conditionings of the mind have huge impacts on the athlete's ability to perform. I mean, just look at your example with basketball, um, the difference between home games and when you're playing on the road. So when you're playing a home game, you have the entire crowd on your side. And what that can do to your mental state and what that can do to your uh, personal beliefs and your personal drive um, has, has a, a very compelling effect. And, you know, even uh, sports betting agencies know this and they um, put that into their numbers as well. Um, and it adds to further inspiration and motivation. So these kind of things um, are already being harnessed in a certain way. But I think maybe, um, you know, what you're talking about before by actually administering whether a ritual or a placebo kind of drug to help them uh, believe that they can be better might be something else as well. Yeah, so I'm going to just sort of restate how I think of this. Placebo to me is just good mental headspace. Mm. It's a good mindset. It's a good approach. And so you can, and your mind matters. <laughs> and I think home ground advantage, which you were talking about, James, is a huge one. You know, the, the basketball, you know, I don't know what it's called. Court. God, I was going to go with pitch. <laughs> I don't know much about sport. There we go. Um, you know, is, is I'm assuming, exactly the same in every single, you know, place that, that you know, they play. But if you're at your home ground, then you've got massive advantage. Mm. And so what a lot of, you know, the sports coaches are doing, there's like, yeah, you need to do these drills and other things. But they're also making sure that people have good culture amongst the team, i.e. their friends, they're not rivals, and that someone's confident. So they're spending a lot of time managing the psychology of the individuals and of the team. And so this sort of leads into another question. Should we be training people in general in managing their own psychology or having a good headspace? And should we be doing this, for instance, at school? We teach them maths, we teach them English, but we don't really teach people about the, you know, what a good headspace is and how to get a good headspace. Um, I, I agree wholeheartedly that we should be teaching this to people. Uh, I, I, like Duncan and I have spoken at length before about the, the current curriculum in school today and the, how uh, they can you know, tend to be a bit outdated. But the first thing that, that we appreciate here is that the mind has an incredible ability to not only heal itself, but to uh, create its own condition for you to be able to perform. Um, one of these things is, uh, one's confidence in their own abilities, whether or not you are actually good at a particular task. Um, they have also shown in certain studies that if you are at least confident, then you will perform better than someone else who has the same, uh, by all accounts, skill level, but less confidence. Um, and so teaching in school, the, the ability for you to tap into your mind, uh, to not just say, look, it's all in the mind or you, you just got to be confident but for them to at least appreciate that for something like a gross mindset would be incredibly beneficial to you, then they can at least start to get the tools uh, you know, down pat in terms of how they can harness this kind of power. I agree. Um, I know this, you know, for me, I've only realized this in the last couple of years, <laughs> how important your mindset is. Um, mm. I don't know why I just thought that, I don't know, if, if you were going to do well at school or, or well at university or well at a job, you worked hard. And 
then, you know, some people were, you know, better, you had your strengths and weaknesses, so you play to your strengths or something. But no, like if, if your mindset is good, then you will remember more. Then you will, you know, see this is growth mindset. When something, you know, you, you fall down or you fail, failing successfully to me is where you fail, but you learned why you failed. And then you learn how to not do it again in the future and you grow from it. That's one definition I like of sort of growth mindset. Another one which James talked about is confidence. Um, you know, there's lots of studies that show that if you're confident, you do much better, whether it's problem solving, whether it's sales, whether it's, you know, people liking you, then if you're not, and confidence is really just something that you can sort of be like, if you've had a bad night's sleep and you've got some superstition that, you know, you saw a black crow, your confidence might be knocked around. And people seriously believe this, but also it seriously is true. Uh, they'll see a black crow and then they're like, uh-oh, things are going to be bad. Then their mindset is bad. Then things are bad because their mind affects their performance on the court or perfects, you know, their, you know, confidence when they're speaking to someone. And so I, I, you know, think that one of the keys to living a good life is having the right mindset. In fact, I think it is the single key. You know, you can be happy, you enjoy something, you cannot. And so we should be training this at schools or at least helping people. Yeah, so to, to your uh, point earlier, Duncan, that, um, you know, your health is your physical health plus your mental health. Um, and something I've come across that I, I find really helps understand this or provide more nuance to it is um, something called the whole health can. Um, uh, to, to be honest, I would have pronounced it whole health can. If, uh, you said if clinician I'm... wrong earlier before as well. Oh, no. <laughs> we're we're going we're to need to have like one of those, it's been X days since James mispronounced something. I was going to call it a basketball pitch. So, so, so that's, like, that, that's a fox pos or how do you say it? A faux pas. Oh, is what, yeah. No, uh, yeah, a fox Pause, folks, pause. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's going to be a comedy of errors on here, um, yeah. and I hope that people laugh at them. Um, yeah, I, I hope that well, we also have the ability to laugh at ourselves. Well, yeah, there'll need to be a blooper reel or a Christmas special or something yeah. like that. Uh, anyway, so the whole go through this. This is really cool. I like this. Yeah, so the whole house can, um, which has been uh, uh, conceived or con uh, thought up by uh, Dr. Lisa Rankin. Uh, and she gives a really good TED talk on this. I'll, I'll provide the link for you to watch it as well. Um, but uh, she uses the the, uh, the symbology of a, a rock can. So if you've ever seen that, it's basically um, you know on a mountain pass somewhere, a whole bunch of rocks are stacked very, very delicately on top of each other, but they balance each other out. Uh, and so you go through the list of the different areas that constitutes your health can. Um, I'll start off with the, the one at the very top. The one rock at the very top is your physical health. And she said this, it goes there specifically because it is the most unstable. It is the one that can easily lose balance if any of the other rocks lose balance as well. So the other rocks include things like mental health, your money status, your environment, creativity, sexuality, spirituality, relationships, work-life purpose, and your inner pilot life. Yeah, um, so I think what I liked about this is that your health is a combination of many things. And specifically what they've put here is physical health, mental health, money, environment, creativity, sexuality, spirituality, work-life purpose, relationships, and inner pilot light. And I think that I used to think that health was just physical health. Is yeah. Duncan eating right? Am I, you know, exercising? And that if I did that, then I would be healthy. 
But there's huge amounts of studies. So for instance, if you've got poor mental health, you live less, you know, your life is shorter. You have far more chronic disease. You know, your life satisfaction, everything goes down. And mental health to me is a combination of many things. <laughs> it's, it's inner, you know, stuff. Because I think, Victor Frankl, you get to choose how you respond to the external environments. But I like how she has put these different areas here. James, which area do you like the most? So one of the areas that I looked at um, in more detail was this inner pilot light, which is the base. And I was like, inner pilot light, what, what is that anyway? Is that my, <laughs> just my, my life force? Is it um, you know, my, my key or something? Uh, or chi? I, I don't know which one it is. <laughs> not a key. <laughs> if you've got a key and it, and it works to make your life good, I need one. So because I don't have one. Yeah, go on. Um, so so um, when I listened to her talk about it, she talked about this being your authentic self or what is true for you. Um, so this is not about belief overriding facts, but it is about being true to yourself. Uh, and I think that's quite profound in in many ways but it's most in terms of if you're not being true to yourself if you're not living your life in a way that is in sync with what you value or what's important to you then that will erode uh through all the other areas of your life um you know you you can have all the money in the world but if you're not being authentic to yourself you won't be i guess healthy or happy uh if you uh, don't have good relationships, then that will also feed into that as well. So I think the inner pilot light, uh, I want to look into it a bit more, but that to me was what really got my attention in terms of how you manage your your whole health care. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think, so just to, to hit the, re, the overarching theme again, mental stuff matters. And whether it's yeah. with medicine or whether it's playing sport or whether it's, problem solving or whether it's just your own life satisfaction and i thought i'd talk about one thing um, that i have found extremely valuable is meditation mm. um i used to think that it was some hippie you know religious thing um this is five years ago duncan i'm a bit of a sort of a fairly science <laughs> human and the good thing is there are thousands of peer-reviewed studies that show that meditation can make massive differences to like your physical health as an example to pain reduction but also to your life satisfaction, creativity, confidence, and other stuff. Yeah. And Tim Ferriss um, wrote a book called Tool of T Tools of Titans. And he said that the one key theme, and this is from you know, people who be very successful in sport, to authors, to business people, to you know, just across sort of all gamuts of life, the sort of one key thing that he thought that, that most people did, like 80% of them, was meditate. And I found this really, really useful because... And this is just a sort of weird analogy. It's kind of like stretching for your mind. You need to take time for your mind to do nothing. I was like, exercise my mind the whole time, whether it was exercising at work or exercising at home by watching TV or, or reading a book or speaking to someone. And then stretching it is, is it where it does nothing. It's like the opposite of exercise. And I didn't do this. And your mind can get cramps <laughs> if you don't do this. Um, and I found that this, this period helps me realize how tightly wound my mind was. I just wonder, have you, have you tried meditation? Do you have any thoughts on this? Or do you have any sort of good things that you found help your mindset? Yeah. So, um, to answer your first question, I certainly have tried meditation. Um, I don't do it regularly, but I'll get to that in a second. 
Just for anybody listening, if you are interested in meditation, I highly recommend you download an app called Headspace. Now, this is not a plug. We're not getting paid by them. Um, But it's a really, really great introduction to the benefits of meditation and how it doesn't actually require for you to be able to sit still for 30 minutes and think of nothing. Um, So it's a really, really good way of guiding you through that. Um, So your second point, uh, and this actually goes back to... Uh, the placebo effect, that when they tried to do studies on whether there were certain personality traits that could affect um, or affect the placebo's effectiveness, you know, stuff like positivity or optimism or gullibility or hypnotism, uh, they, they found that none of them were correlated. But what was correlated um, were things that were tr- true or things that were relevant to the particular patient, and they can be things like cultural norms. So what I'm getting to here is that meditation is, yes, is a very powerful tool that will help stretch your mind, but meditation doesn't have to be the only thing. It's not like that's the only thing available to you if you want to do this. Um, the, the, the important message that I think is important to, um, to share or spread is that you can find almost anything that is relevant or relatable to you that will stretch your mind as I won't say equally beneficial, but as beneficial. So for me, going for a run every week helped me get into this state where my mind just completely tunes out um, and I allow you know thoughts to come in and out of my head um, and I just simply observe them. Uh, so that is when I'm exercising my body, but I'm stretching my mind. I think that's really good. Um, so, so meditation, I believe, doesn't have to just be sitting you know, concentrating on your breath or, you know, there's Vipassana. Uh, I'm sure I've just mispronounced that. <laughs> there's different types of this in transcendental meditation. Um, you mean mantra? So transcendental is typically mantra-based. Um, Vipassana is, is like more body scans. Um, wow. I've forgotten the other one, which is mainly concentrating on your breath. Um, but for me, it is kind of, there's like two modes, mind going and mind neutral. <laughs> and... Meditation, I think, is getting your mind into neutral. And many people use different tools for this. Concentrate on your breath. Concentrate on a body scan. Concentrate on a mantra. Go for a run. Yoga. You know, concentrate on the movement of your body. And what you've realized is that your mind has shut up at some point. <laughs> it is normally going... Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then when it does, you relax and you calm. And when you do this, you also start to realize that your subconscious has all these things that it wants to tell you that you haven't given time to listen to. And so James said something really interesting is that the running for him is a meditative experience. And it's very true, can be. Running can also be the exact opposite. You're stressing yourself because I've got to run, I've got to do this and it's got to run faster. And, uh, and at the end of it, your mind is more tense than it was at the beginning. So I don't think that you need to meditate in a traditional sense i.e. sitting down, you know, quiet, eyes closed, um, to be able to have the outcomes or benefits of what meditation can do. One of the things I think maybe you're talking about is slightly different is like mindful eating. And this is eating, so so food, um, plus the best positive mental outcome you can get, i.e. massive placebo. (laughs) Uh, So I might just go on this for one minute. Is that cool, James? Yep, yep. Um, so basically, I think this is this is theory I have, which is bandwidth. Your mind only has a certain amount of bandwidth. 
and you can chew it up in some way. So I, for like, you know, 32 years of my life, had whenever I was eating a meal, I was eating, but I was also talking to someone. I was eating or I was reading a book. I was eating or I was watching, you know, Netflix. I was never just eating. And what I realized is that if I just ate and that I concentrated 100% of my bandwidth on that rather than also speaking to someone, that then I got much more. So for instance, I closed my eyes, I wasn't listening to anything, and then I ate slowly. And what I realized is that I devoted 100% of my attention to the food, i.e. eating mindfully, and I got like three times the enjoyment out of it. And I was like, holy crap, I have been getting one third of the joy of food this entire time because I didn't realize that you could eat mindfully. And so this was kind of food plus mega, you know, placebo effect on the top, i.e. mental enjoyment up. And before I'd been eating food and talking or eating food and thinking about work and I'd only been getting a certain percentage of it. And so I just thought this was just huge. Like, can you do this in all these places? Mm. So um, in terms of mindful eating, my experience with this has been uh, back in the... Uh, I'll, I'll say the old days when my wife and I used to go out uh, and eat at restaurants a lot. Uh, very early on, she would tell me, uh, James, I don't think that I can go out to dinner with you because when you eat, you just are very, very verbal in your enjoyment of the food. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I didn't even know what she was talking about. So the next time we, uh, we went out to eat, I tried to observe what I was doing and it was... Um, for me, a ritual where I would take every single bite and savor every single flavor or um, sensation that would go in my mouth. And it just happened to be something that was uh, verbally very enjoyable for me. Um, and so I guess in that way, that was my, that was my way of doing mindful eating. Um, but it's, it is very powerful because I would put in, as you said, Duncan, all of my attention into... The, um, I guess the practice of eating at that particular point in time um, and that has a significant ability to increase my enjoyment or my ability to enjoy that food um, another way of looking at this is for me I really enjoy you know a ritual around making my food uh, and I think if you can actually involve yourself in the process, not just in experiencing the eating part, but in the creation of that process. It's also another layer of um, appreciation. It's not that you like the food more because you know what's in it and because you made it yourself, but you appreciate it more. Does that make sense? I think it definitely does. And so I think you're talking about like, if you appreciate the food more, you get more enjoyment out of it. Yeah, yeah. If you get more enjoyment out of it, What's happened? It might be exactly the same meal, but you've got a positive mental effect on it, i.e. a placebo effect. And that's because you've put some effort into that. So you can get positive mental effects and negative mental effects in lots and lots of places. Another thing I thought I'd just touch on is a lot of people talk about um, making food as being relaxing. And I think it might be the same as doing yoga or going for a run for James or meditating. It stops your mind from whatever's going on and you just kind of, tune out, your mind goes into neutral, as I was sort of talking about before, and then it becomes really relaxing and peaceful. So in some respects, meditating to me is just being able to relax properly, um, is just having your mind hit neutral. Um, I thought I'd talk quickly, James mentioned an app for Headspace. I quite prefer an app called Smiling Mind. 
Well, I've actually gone through about nine meditation apps because I think they've all got a little bit of interesting points to them. I would say that just like in economics, you don't want to adhere heavily, too heavily to one doctrine. Uh, my two cents is that's general, you know, sort of rule for, for most areas. So in meditation, I try lots of different ideas to different people. Smiling Mind is really good because it's got a courses in there. And they take you through not just, say, breath or body scans, but also mindful walking, mindful eating, and lots of different things. And I sort of through this, now I go for a walk. Like, mindful walking? What are you talking about? <laughs> and I used to be, I don't know, turbo doing email on my phone or thinking about something I had to do later there. Now I'm just like, no, just concentrate on how my feet are feeling, you know, as they go on the ground. And then by the end of that, I've walked for the, you know, 200 meters to the coffee shop. And I'm like, ah, oh. And my mind is like just hit neutral and I'm relaxed. And so I think that you can let go. Like meditation in some respects is practicing calm and all these tools to get calm. And calm gives you a better headspace. Um, and the better you get at meditation, the better you can bring out your calm muscle. You're practicing your calm muscle. It's like, mm. okay, I want to be calm right now. Mm. And so I can just do that. Whereas before I couldn't, you know, I will calm into being. So your mind, you can train. And if you get better at training your mind, then you can use it to hopefully help you do things in other places. So I think another area which this has um, already got significant uh, attention, but not within this context, is uh, in the workplace and your ability to be productive or to create value. Uh, and just thinking about what you said then, Duncan, about how you are focusing um, in that moment on one particular thing, whether it's eating or whether it's walking and not uh you know as we want to do allowing our mind to just ramble on incessantly uh and in, when i think about applying that into a work context that kind of sounds very similar about getting into a flow state uh which i think we've also talked about uh, or touched on in one of our previous podcasts uh and how that can not only so uh so just for anyone listening flow state is basically when you uh and Duncan will be able to explain this better than I can. But uh, uh, specifically focused on one single task at hand when time just suddenly becomes irrelevant. And you are able to get so much more work done because you have tapped into this area of your mind that you can focus on one particular task in a very, very deep and meaningful way. What I find interesting about it is that this seems to have like a cyclical effect where your ability to focus on something in turn creates greater outcome or greater productivity, which then further creates more focus. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, we've talked about flow multiple times before, and there's many definitions. Um, I'm sure Chicks Hate Me High, who sort of wrote the book on this, will disagree with kind of all of what we've said. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's where you get into a zone where you're working sort of seamlessly, really high productivity, mm where you stop realizing, you know, the, what sort of is happening with time, you're really enjoying it and getting things done. And so to do this, you get much, much better outcomes, whether it's creativity, enjoyment, productivity, the works. And so, for instance, at my work, we set up each morning, which we, we call Deep Work Time, which is from a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, and there's no meetings allowed, no Slack, which is an instant messaging service, and no emails in the morning. So everybody has this cleared time where they can work on a big project and not get interrupted. So you're not allowed to email. You're not allowed to, oh no, you actually are allowed to email, but you're not allowed to, you know, not, you shouldn't be checking your email. Um, no Slack, no meetings. And then in the afternoon, 
you know, have meetings. So you have time each day and then you can hopefully get into this flow state or you can get big projects knocked off. You can do them in like one hit and it makes work so much more enjoyable because uh, you get to like really get there and be like, okay, I've got this big three hour thing I've got to do. Cool. I know I've got three hours every single day or more, four hours every day to just actually crunch on with one thing. And so I think setting up your life to have these, you know, natural environment or have the environment be reinforcing towards positive mental states is super key. Yeah. So in, in that sense, by creating the right environment, you're allowing not only yourself, but everyone in that environment to have greater outcomes by changing nothing other than their mindset. Um, you know, sure. Uh, but I guess what I mean is that there are, you've removed distractions and, to me, that's kind of what I saw the negative side of placebo, not the nocebo, but in terms of placebo not working, is when uh, the patient was distracted from what's at hand, whether they're not aware of their environment or they're not receiving that nurturing care from their doctor. Um, so that sounds like something that's very, very much relatable to this and how you set that up in your own workplace. So that's really interesting. I think, yeah. It is. And one of the other things that I sort of realized, so again, I think we're sort of getting into the mindset side. You you know, you need to have a good mindset in all areas of your life, whether it's taking medicine from the doctors at the hospital, whether it's, you know, talking to others, whether it's work, um, whether it's with yourself, which is kind of one thing. So I didn't realize for a long time that I was in a relationship with myself um, and that I should therefore go on dates with myself as an example. So I have an entire day a week called Duncan Day, which is where I go on a date with myself. Uh, And I just do things, which is basically to put love into my love tank, except my own love tank. Like I didn't realize you could fill your own love tank. Uh, I thought others filled your love tank. I know that sounds so obvious, but it really, you know, five years ago, Duncan didn't realize that. (laughs) Um, And so one of the things I think in one of my activities of myself is journaling, which is in effect a conversation with yourself. I don't know about you, but if I have a conversation with myself in my mind, it can often get pretty confused pretty quickly and I end up just not making sense. And so what I found is I just start writing down. So there'd be something that I don't understand or that I don't have a good view on. And then I just start writing about it. And slowly but surely I start to understand it more. And usually by the end of it, I'm like, oh yeah, I've learned something. And so I really, really like the idea of that, you know, one way to improve your headspace is your relationship with yourself. And one key way I've found or activity is to journal. So all of these different activities, it's all about understanding how your mind has the ability to take care of itself. Or uh, to destruct itself. Or to just, exactly right. So um, all of these different areas that we've talked about, medicine being a big part of that, but, you know, sports, uh, your social uh, networks, your work, all of these different um, you know, aspects of one's life, all that, um, I guess those all can be put into your, your whole health can, <laughs> um, uh, are things that you can control, are things that you can have a direct or have at least a meaningful relationship with that will allow the body, you know, your physio- physiological self to do what it needs to do. Uh, so, like, for example, people who still dispel the notion of placebo as, you know, a, just an add-on or just a, um, a more um, trivial thing, uh, only have to look at 
uh, what's called the spontaneous spontaneous remission project, where it's basically just a ledger of all uh, people in the world who've healed themselves with no medical treatment uh, from terminal diseases. Uh, so this is really, really um, compelling stuff. So it goes back to your original um, question, Duncan, about why this isn't more widespread and what it is that we can do about it, whether it's in the medical world or at schools or at the workplace. Yeah, I think we sort of said it earlier. Um, you know, you get trained at school on maths and English or whatever. And I used to think of the same thing for myself at work. I want to get better at work. Well, I should learn about, you know, how to do management. I should learn about startups. I should learn about education. I, I'm your co-founder at Education Startup. Uh, but I've realized that now much more important is to learn about myself and to learn about how to improve my mindset. Mm. And if I do this, then I will be able to be better to interact with. I'll be able to not be underconfident or not be overconfident, to be confident. I'll be able to then, when I'm problem solving, be more creative because I know I'm not tense and I'm not worried about this thing tomorrow. And so a big part of letting up myself is actually realizing that I was stressed. I didn't realize it. And then realizing that that wasn't healthy for myself, either mentally or physio physically or physiologically or for others. And so this is huge phase shift. Getting better at work is learning new skills, like, I don't know, how to do regression analysis or something <laughs> versus getting better at work is learning about myself and learning how to improve my mindset. Yeah, no, so it, it, it's something um, like to your point, I've only just started really appreciating recently in that you can, uh, I, and I guess it comes down to growth mindset and growth mindset being the belief that you can increase your ability regardless of whatever um, your natural capabilities are. So I think we can take what we've learned from the placebo effect as the body's ability or the mind's ability to, I guess, correct or, or um, enhance whatever it needs inside the body. Um, so I, I don't know if there's anything other in the, uh, in the health card that we haven't covered, but for, uh, for something I think is important, is not just our own ability, but our environments as well. So they talked about in medical about the, the nurturing side of the relationship. Uh, and so this is also important in things like sports and work, where your relationship with your uh, whether you are a manager and you have people below you, um, you, you need to, like, I guess, as a leader, it could also be something that we train managers in as having a more nurturing relationship with their direct, not just this delegation relationship. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I thought I'd just touch on one point you talked about earlier. I think one part of a good mindset is growth mindset. We've talked about this a lot um, and we'll put a link to the book again. <laughs> um, I'd watch the TED talk. But I've got a sort of definition in front from a school perspective. Um, so they talk about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And so everything is a skill. Empathy is a skill. So you can develop it. Mathematics is a skill. You're not born good at maths or bad at maths. You can be, you know, improve at maths, basically. So I'll just read this out. Growth mindset. There are some subjects at school I try harder at than others. Fixed mindset. There are some subjects in school that I am good at and some subjects that I am not good at. Growth mindset, failing can be okay if I learn something. Fixed mindset, failing is never okay. Growth mindset, some of my peers try harder than I do. Fixed mindset, some of my peers are smarter than I am. Growth mindset, 
If I wanted to be smarter in certain subjects or better at certain activities, I could try harder. Fixed mindset. Sometimes trying harder helps, but it doesn't really change how smart you are. Growth mindset. I know I can do well at anything if I really want to. Fixed mindset. I know I can do it well at things I'm good at. So all of those things talks about your your own internal belief. Mm. And it's the same with placebo is that it's your your own mindset that determines the outcome of the program, whether you're given actual medication, where they show that when you're given proper medicine, like morphine, uh, your mindset can still change the outcome. Uh, it can still be less effective. Um, the same with if you have the mindset that whatever it is that you are undertaking is healing, it will actually, you know, trigger those receptors in the mind, in the brain, and you will start to feel those effects as if you were taking real medication. And I think that's kind of what um, the other side of growth mindset that people don't really understand is that having the mindset is one thing, but actually the impact of that is that it will have a physiological effect on you as well. I don't know if it's, um, you know, if it actually make you have more neuroplasticity in your brain, but I certainly think that it allows you to be more receptive to growth and learning as well uh and i don't think i don't know if there's actually been any kind of um you know insights into this but just by having the right mindset doesn't mean that you can put yourself in the position to learn more but actually creates the condition in your mind to learn more as well this is a slight parallel to that some people talk about how you have like a, a certain amount of willpower in a day mm. And you can spend that willpower on wherever you want, but at some point you run out of it and then you've got no more left in your willpower tank, if, if it were, as it were, and then everything's hard. But then there's the complete opposite school of thought, which is that the more willpower I, you can resist eating that piece of chocolate or you can you know, you know, go to the gym or whatever else it is or you know, read the book, actually the more willpower you get. So it's kind of a sort of, resource that grows the more you are able to actually deploy it and there's more stuff if you talk about the research in the growth mindset side it's kind of the more you're able to have belief in yourself mm. the more circumstances that occur where you find ways to learn from where you find ways to sort of improve and so i think that the the, the second one is sort of more true but you know each person is their own so they sort of choose this and there's this Wonderful quote, which I thought I would read, which is from, where is it? Um, Socrates. Intelligent individuals learn from everything and everyone. Average people, from their experiences, the stupid already have all the answers. <laughs> and so I think your mindset is like, I can learn from everything, everyone. No matter if I did it badly, I learned from it. That person over there who's annoying, I can learn from them <laughs> and all these other things. And so I think getting the right mindset is key to enjoying things and is key to growing. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it's funny when you hear that quote and you think about people who in your own life or in the news who appear to be having all the answers, it, it suddenly rings very true. <laughs> um, uh, Duncan, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation today. Uh, have you got anything else that you wanted to cover in, uh, in this topic? No. Maybe we have actually run out of things to talk about. <laughs> Which would be a first. It's a very big first. Um, so maybe maybe it's summary time. James, you want to, you want to do summary? All right, summary. So um, before it, 
undertaking uh, this episode in placebo, my understanding was uh, quite basic in the sense that placebos were simply um, the brain's ability to heal itself uh, in a deceptive manner. But there's a lot more to it than this. The two most compelling pieces of um, insight for me were that the brain can also inhibit uh, medical application. So if you don't know you're receiving morphine, it's less effective. Uh, and the other side, which is that um, if you are being told you're receiving a placebo, it can still have a similar effect. So you are, you don't have to be deceived to receive the placebo. And for me, that's what opens up the most potential in that placebo effects are not by nature deceptive. They can actually simply um, embark on the individual's own sense of willpower or um, believability in whatever they're undertaking. So that means it can apply across other areas. It can apply in things like sports and apply in things like work life. And so if we look at different kinds of models of, uh, or mental models, things like growth mindset, things like flow, that all can start to play into how one can work on themselves, but also how we can work with each other in a more nurturing environment to improve these areas of the mind so that we can not only optimize our, um, the value that we create, but um, you know, enable us to heal our own bodies. Um, you know, and so this is something I do believe that the medical world needs to take on in a more mainstream way. It seems like it's being medically accepted, the way it's talked about um, at the moment. It's now the next chapter for us to start teaching this to uh, children at a much earlier stage in their life, the power of the mind, uh, and then for us to start changing the way or the, uh, the way we have relationships with medicine and our doctors, from simply administering drugs to us to actually being a caretaker and a nurturing relationship. Cool. Um, my um, conclusion is outcomes are physiological plus mental. Some things like medicine, it's maybe 90% physiological and your mind can still massively change that, e.g. 30-50% difference for morphine. Some are like 90% mental. Example, creativity. Uh, you know, example, your interactions with other people. And imagine how big a difference your mind can play there. So the right mindset will make a massive difference in all places and working on that and understanding that is crucial uh, to having a good life and to getting good outcomes. All right, I think we're done. Hey. <laughs> What's the next article we're doing, James? All right, so next week, uh, if you would like to tune in, we're going to actually talk about work and the loneliness epidemic. Uh, so topics around how modern society um, and things like social media uh, may make us more connected than we've ever been before, but it appears that we are more lonely than we've ever been before. So, very interesting uh, fodder for you to think on until next time. All right. See y'all later. Cheers, Jason. <laughs>